Welcome to Audacious Water, the podcast about how to create a world of water abundance for everyone. I'm John Sabo, director of the Bywater Institute at Tulane University. On today's show, groundwater, climate adaptation, and monitoring water from the sky. My guest is Jay Famlietti, a hydrologist and global futures professor in the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University. Jay has extensive experience measuring and tracking groundwater and water security issues, including using satellites to help develop advanced computer models to track how freshwater availability changes around the globe, which you'll hear us talk a lot about in this show. Coming up, I talk with Jay about the state of water resources in the American West, how to make water usage reductions easier for farmers, and the next big thing when it comes to water management in the West. Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. Yeah, this is fun. Welcome back to the U.S. It's good to be here. I felt like I was on the moon there for the last five years. Okay. So I always kind of start a podcast with maybe a softball, which is kind of like, when you were a kid, did you ever imagine that you'd be doing what you're doing now? No, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a veterinarian. I've had a course correction along the along the way. Actually, what happened was I... I got to college and realized that pre-veterinary medicine was extremely hard, and I like didn't know how to study. I was, you know, classic first and second year, you know, student. Just partied a lot till I figured out what I really wanted to do, and then I rolled into it. Needed an extra class when you're enrolled into a geology class. And it's great. That was it. You know, so that's the sort of the path that took me took me here. Well, now you're back in the West. And I imagine you continue to do some of the same research when you were up in Canada that you were doing before when you were in California. But given that you're in Arizona now, what what are your research priorities? What are you interested in working on? Well, you may know about the funding that we got from uh, Governor Ducey on his way out of office. He uh, gave ASU around $40 million to focus on water and water innovation. And so that's really dominating the whole, you know, the whole team there. And if, you know, if you were still there, you'd be, you'd be right in there. You'd probably be in charge of it. So that's a, become a big focus. It's not what I intended when I, when I moved there. I thought I was going to continue doing this global and regional work with satellites and really understand how water security is at risk around the world. But I think it's great that we have this opportunity to really make a difference in Arizona because, as you know, you know, it's really going to be challenged now with the cutbacks on the Colorado River and increasing pressure on groundwater and also this mindset that Phoenix can just keep growing and growing. And I think it's finally, it's a wake-up call, really, for, for the city that we can't just keep going on with infinite, uncontrolled growth when there's no not enough water to support it all. Let's Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's zoom out a little bit. Like, you've talked about, written about the Colorado River a lot and water resources in the West in general. What's what's wrong about the way we think about Colorado River water and water resources in the West in general? I think in general, most people, although this changed over the last few years, I think most people just assume that it's not a problem that's going to impact them in their in their lifetimes, that there's, you know, there's enough water. But, you know, we know the story. I mean, the, the river's over-allocated. Allocations were done. At a you know during a historically wet period rather than a sort of an average period, and even if they'd been done on an average period, things are drying out anyway. So you know the big challenge is now how you know what can we do 
you know, there are only so many levers that we can we can play with. There's the supply lever and there, there's the demand lever. There's not much we can do on the supply side. The supply is decreasing. So all the work has to be on the demand side. And that's that's hard. So that, to me, is the challenge. And it, it, just like everywhere, agriculture uses all of the water or, you know, 80 percent of the water that's withdrawn or around the world is used for use for agriculture. So it's not like it's us versus agriculture. It's just when you're looking at budgets, you know, you have to look at the you have to be practical about it. and You go for the big numbers, just like your family budget. Right. If you need to save money, you're probably going to you know, try to whatever, not live in the biggest house and not drive the, you know, the. The, the Maserati, and you know you're probably going to go with a Volkswagen, and you know whatever a smaller a smaller house, you know not a perfect analogy, but those are the big those are the big numbers, right? So it doesn't really matter. I think like if you go to Starbucks every day and spend a couple of dollars on a cup of coffee, what does matter is those bigger expenses, and that's the way it is with water. The bigger expenses are agriculture. Yet we have to eat, so we have to have to, and we have a growing population. So we have to figure out how to do this more efficiently. And also the challenge, I think, is do it in a way that doesn't really hurt farmers. We can't just tell the farmers, go do this, go improve your irrigation efficiency. We have to have incentives and and low cost loans and respect the fact that they, they grow our food and they have these water rights. So let's talk about the farm piece. I totally agree with you. You know, efficiency on the farm is where to start, uh, but it's expensive. And we can't expect, you know, agriculture to shoulder that that blame and also, you know, pay for that total cost. So how do you do that? Is there a way to connect cities to farms and do that? Or what are the ways? Yeah, I just think in terms, so I'm not an economist, but I think incentives are really important. And those incentives can be in the form of tax breaks. And if we're thinking specifically about, let's say, shifting to, I don't know, drip irrigation instead of flood irrigation or some other kind of irrigation that's not flood irrigation, which is really, really inefficient, really uses a ton of water. So, you know, what sort of incentives, what sort of low interest loans, what sort of tax breaks are we going to give our farmers so that they can make this transition? We also have to show them and show them that it's economically feasible and make it economically feasible. And that could also be in terms of crop prices there could be opportunities for water markets trading trading water amongst amongst local farmers. I don't mean water markets in the sense of like, hey, let's have a water stock on the stock market and drive the price up high. I just mean that maybe you know if farmers can monetize their water rights, it'd be you know we need a lot of tools in that in that toolbox to get the farmers on board. But I think the biggest thing is, and they have to be making the same amount of money maybe even more, but at least the same amount of money. They can't really be penalized for making this switch because it's, you know, it's not, none of us would be happy, you know, being made to do that. And so we have to make it feasible for them. I think that's pretty wise. I think, you know, one of the things that I hear from lawyers and some of my colleagues at ASU is nothing's going to get fixed until the rights are adjudicated, until people know what they have. And sometimes I feel like, there's a little bit of reticence to know what you have because then you might not have as much as you thought you did <laughs> or something like that, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting. You know, my fear about about the adjudication process is that it'll, it'll take a century, you know, it'll take a long time. And we need things that are going to work now. And I think we're in a good spot 
I think, in Arizona with Governor Hobbs. Uh, she really seems to be really on point with respect to water. I'm sure you've been following what she's been doing there, especially with the, you know, the most recent thing is the Saudi leases, right? She's ended the the leases for the Saudi farms that are growing alfalfa and you know, sending it back to Saudi Arabia. So she's, she's terminated that, but she came straight in and said, uh, like in her first week, hey, we really need to take a look at the groundwater management in Arizona. So, you know, I like to been saying now, this is sort of the second time for me where uh, I've experienced these, what I've been calling moments, right? The moments of you've got the crisis. So California, like this is California as an example, the, the, and I'm speaking specifically about this period, say between 2011 and 2015, when Governor Brown was in office, Galicia Marcus was the chair of the State Water Resources Control Board. We're in a colossal drought at that point, like the worst ever. Of course, it's gotten worse since then. But at that point, it was like the worst ever. You know, the media was on point. Everyone was doing conservation. And then we had this research that was coming out that was showing this big picture about how bad off things really were. And it was that sort of combination of having a proactive government and the media being on point and people across the state, because the media was on point, people across the state really understood what was going on. And it was in that time frame, 2014, that we were able to pass the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. And, you know, I think we're in the same, a similar situation in Arizona with Governor Hobbs in office. She's very water focused. She has her water policy advisory board. She has her water policy advisor. She's doing, you know, she ended the Saudi leases, which I just mentioned. She's predisposed towards towards doing this. And we, we get this big chunk of money at ASU. So, like, we have the ability to actually work with the state agencies and get things done. So that's sort of what I'm hoping to help accomplish over the next few years. Sounds like a bright spot. Let's talk about some other bright spots. One of the things that I like to compare is California and Arizona in terms of groundwater management. Arizona has had groundwater management since 1980. Governor Babbitt passed the Arizona Groundwater Management Act then, and it was thought to be, I mean, we look back on it now as something visionary. I also say that we need that next visionary thing, right? Like it worked, but it, we need something more at this point. What do you think? What do you think that is? Is it more groundwater management act? What, what is it? I think the biggest thing is that a big part of the state. So, you know, you know me, John. I'm just learning about this stuff. But when you look at the active management areas, the groundwater, the places in Arizona that are actually where groundwater is actually managed, it's a lot of the population, but it's only about 25 percent of the area, and that's a lot of the state. That is unmanaged, and that's a lot of that's a lot of agriculture. So to me, that's the next frontier. I think, and and I'm saying this based on you know our research with using the the uh, NASA Grace satellite that we use to track groundwater storage changes from space. So I can see that you know there's a lot of water being lost outside of those active management areas. So to me, the visionary next visionary thing, and I think you know Governor Hobbs is is on track to at least be open to this. And, you know, she's talking about revising the Groundwater Management Act. To me, the next frontier is bringing the rest of the state under control. That'll be interesting, I think. And I agree with you completely. I think it'll be interesting in this case for Arizona to watch California doing that, right? Like, because California is doing the whole state. Yep. So California California's done it, right? It's carved up the state into, I don't even know the final number, somewhere around 200 
which is too many, managing the equivalent of the active management areas. They're called groundwater sustainability agencies. Interesting. All right, let's shift gears and and go to the Mississippi. You know, I'm in New Orleans now, and when I moved here, my only hesitation was I've spent my whole life on water insecurity, and now I'm going to a place uh, or drought, and now I'm going to a place where there's way too much water. And it turns out that's not the case. I mean, if you look at the Mississippi as a whole, for example, the New York Times had a recent piece on groundwater, the groundwater crisis, right? It, it, and writing on Forbes on that right now. And what I was surprised about, there are two big areas in the Mississippi Basin that are experiencing maybe more groundwater loss. What's going on with that and what can we do about that? So I'm not as familiar with the Mississippi Basin, but I will say, you know, when you look down around the southern part of the river and the alluvial aquifers, there's always been a tremendous amount of of groundwater pumping. I think people don't really recognize it because, you know, what happens sometimes, we don't have to get too much into the hydrogeology, but when you pump groundwater and you're close to a big river like the Mississippi, you're actually drawing in river water. So it sort of goes, you know, goes unnoticed until you get to times like these when, you know, there's a, some uh, some drought some drought issues. So, you know, just like everywhere else, there's a tremendous amount of agriculture, there's a tremendous amount, you know, I think the New York Times article was great, by the way, for raising raising public awareness. So, I, you know, I think it comes down to really people don't really understand like groundwater is this sort of mystical thing, right? You know, I don't think people really under, understand it. I mean, that makes sense. It's, you know, we under, we understand it, but still there's a lot we need to learn. So the general public, I think, you know, is, is probably a little shocked to see that there's, see that there's water issues there. Right. I also think it's ironic that you, I mean, I, I did a road trip with my daughter last year from the mouth to the headwaters of the Mississippi. And in the Delta, you have to try really hard to see the river because it's levied everywhere, right? And then there's like corn everywhere, which makes sense. It's a it's the corn belt, right? And all of that is irrigated by groundwater. And so it's not surprising when you look at the scale of it and the levee and you say, Where where is that getting its water in the dry in the dry season, right? It's coming from underground. I think that's true of a lot of a lot of our agricultural regions. And you know, a similar experience that I've had in the in the West in California. You leave LA and you're heading trying to head up into the Central Valley and there's mountains to cross and you come down that area is called the grapevine. So you come down out of the grapevine, it's just like on I five or I five and and uh, and State Route 99 sort of come together, split off. Anyway, you, you come down into the valley and you see the valley on a clear day. You can see the you can see the valley, and you don't see any water, right? In fact, in a lot of Southern California, you you don't really see any water. So you know it's coming from it's coming from groundwater. But especially the scope of agriculture in our in our food producing regions is so huge. And when you don't see a big river nearby anywhere, you know, you realize it's coming from groundwater. Okay, let's, um, another observation as a newbie to New Orleans and to the Mississippi Basin. When I first moved here, we had a hurricane and we had massive amounts of rain and nobody was talking about drought, which I know a lot about because I come from Arizona. Last two years, we've had record low uh, Mississippi River levels. And almost every year that happens, well, the last two years it's happened, people have been asking me, well, is this the new normal? Are we going to have a low Mississippi? 
And my first reaction was, no, this is the Mississippi. But then I thought about it. You know, half the river is in the arid west, half the basin. And the line that used to demarcate the transition between a humid or almost humid climate to arid was 100th meridian. And now it's 95th. I think it's moving east. Talk to me about new normal and what that means. Yeah. So that's good. You know, I hadn't really thought about, hadn't thought about that at all, especially with Mississippi and half of it, you know, being, being in the arid West. So, so yeah, I mean, the, the West is, is aridifying and we've got higher temperatures, higher temperatures mean the atmosphere can hold more water. That means that there's more of a demand for uh, from the atmosphere for water on the ground, meaning through evaporation. So those higher temperatures and the higher ability of the atmosphere to hold more water means that evaporation is going to increase. And so that's leading to this what we're calling aridification. It's not you know it's it's not drought. It's a long term process, and it's uh, you know it's wreaking havoc on our water resources and. I think we need to be really thinking, and and this is where I think so. Podcasts like this are really important. Getting the message out that yeah, this is the new normal. I mean, sure, we're going to have our climate oscillations, and just like you know, earlier we were talking about fires in Canada and smoke across the prairies. That's a new normal, and not enough people are talking about that. Not enough people are talking about the the expansion of the dry regions, and we need to because that's the you know, that's the way things are going. As an aside, it just sort of connects to some research that we're doing that actually looks at the expansion of the drying parts by satellite. So coarse resolution globally. And I think it's something like 0.6 million, so 600,000 square kilometers a year is the trend in more in drying regions. I mean, that adds up. It does add up. Up next... Jay and I discuss the wildfires in Canada and what that signals, the need for water adaptation, and how smaller private sector satellite companies are contributing to water research from the sky. To your point on fire, one of the things that you, know, you and I spend our lives looking at maps and data and integrating space and time, but I think for those that don't do that, it's just another fire, except for when it's in Canada. And then it's pretty far north. And what I've been telling people is forests are moving north and trees are changing. We need to choose the forest we want to save and just accept that this is a large scale process that's going to change the face of, of Western landscapes. I, I hadn't thought about Canada before. What, is, what does that mean for Canada? Like, <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah. It's bad news, dude. And it's bad news not only for Canada, but for the world. So, yes, Canada needs to come to terms with the fact that, you know, Canada as a nation, first of all, is huge. Its temperature is increasing at twice the global average, where I lived in the prairies, which is the sort of south central part of Canada. So just above the high plains in the, in the United States. Sorry, warming at three times the global rate. And the north is warming at four times the global rate. So coming to terms, and there's profound changes. It's just like the Mountain West. I mean, profound changes in snow and snowpack and same things we were just talking about, the aridification. But it's the fire situation that is relatively new in Canada that's caught people off guard. And so it's part of the climatology. The forests are huge. 
Canada doesn't even have, you know, the population of Canada even know what it is, but it's like ridiculous. I don't know, maybe it's like 30 million or something. It's a sparsely populated country. So there's no one to really even do the forest management. They're huge. It's, I think it's basically impossible to manage them. Another thing that doesn't really get talked about is, you know, that permafrost is melting and those forests are burning and all of that carbon and methane that's stored up there is being released into the atmosphere. And third thing that people don't talk about is carbon credits. You know, if you're a company and you're buying carbon credits and you're going to plant more trees in Canada, those carbon credits are literally burning up, right? So it's not working. So, And I think that, that, that you know, the fact that forests are burning is a double-edged sword, right? Because there's less uptake of CO2 and then there's the release from the smoke and the methane from yes. uh, permafrost, like you said. So, yeah, that's... My next assignment, <laughs> yeah, my next assignment after this podcast is a course on climate change and global rivers, and and we talk about these kinds of feedbacks that are negative and self sustaining, right? That keep things moving forward in a way that we can't manage, and unfortunately, yeah. And that Canadian story, it's not really part of the global narrative, and it's not even part of the Canadian narrative. It's a, I don't know what the heck is going on there, but you know, my wife and I would be out walking the dog several times a day, and and, you know, you don't really see it. You just see, you see a little bit in the news as part of the weather report. It's like the friendly Canadians just say, oh, well, that's part of the, part of the situation now. But it's right. There's actually like, it's a, it's a weather, you know, when you look at your weather apps or, you know, you look at the news and you've got the little icon for the sun or the rain or, you know, cloudy. Now there's a smoke one. So yeah, it's part of the climatology now. All right. Let's get a little bit nerdy for a sec. Talk to us about Grace, how it works, what it does, not from a super technical point of view, but just like demystify it because it's a spaceship. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's like science fiction. So it's basically uh, like a scale. I like to say it's like a scale in the sky. So Grace is a NASA mission, stands for Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment. It has been in operation since 2002. Actually, there was a little break around 2017 when version one sort of ran out of battery power. Version two, which is essentially a, a copy of, of version one, was launched. So it's a little bit of a gap, but we've got 20 years or so of data. So, you know, when we think about most satellites, we think like, oh, it's a big camera up there, or it's a big telescope, or it's a big thermometer, right? It's taking the temperature, it's measuring some kind of emissions. Grace is different. It's measuring gravity variations which have to do with weight changes on the ground. And so think of it like this. When there's and the satellites are not very big. There's two of them. They're like sort of look like squashed minivans. They orbit up at about 400 kilometers. They're separated by about 200 kilometers. So they orbit over the poles. So these two crushed minivans that are orbiting and sort of chasing each other around in the straight line over the poles. And so as the earth is spinning around, you know, they're basically sweeping over the earth. So that's the scale. Why do I say it's a scale? Because when there's more water mass on the ground, so, you know, big hurricane and around New Orleans or something that brings a lot of water on land. And so the region has literally gained water weight and that is enough that water weight gain when it is enough and so that would be about say the size of a big flood in in new orleans it actually exerts a greater gravitational tug on those two squashed minivans flying around up there at the scale and pulls them down closer to the earth 
right? As they fly over, the first one flies by and it gets pulled down, whatever, you know, a couple of centimeters or something. And then as it passes, it, you know, relaxes back into its, its orbit. And then the second one comes in and the same thing happens. And then the opposite happens when they're flying over the southwestern United States. It's a region that's actually lost water weight. So it exerts less of a gravitational tug on the satellite. So they actually move up a little bit higher in their, you know, in their orbit. And so the measurement is actually very careful measurement of the position of the scale, like the ups and downs of the scale. Just like the scale in your bathroom, right? You stand on it. If you weigh more, right, if you're heavier, the heavier you are, the more the scale is depressed. The more water mass is on the ground, the more those satellites are pulled towards the Earth. And so by keeping track of the ups and downs of the of the satellites, which we do extremely accurately, less than a thousandth of a millimeter is the right. It's a sub-micron scale accuracy. By keeping track of the position of those satellites, we can map out the places that are around the world that are gaining or losing water on a monthly basis. So we do that over time. So we see the ups and downs. But we also, because we've been doing it for 20 years, we see the trends. And that's the that's the part that's scary, seeing those, seeing those trends in these places that are drying out. You know, we see the ice melt. We see the groundwater depletion. We see the places where flooding is increasing, where drought's increasing. We see the Canadian stuff now that, that I was talking about. We see the drying and the permafrost melting. It's scary. I like that description, the scale. I've never heard that before. I'm sure you've used it many times, and I'll probably steal it from you. I'm sure you haven't patented no, please, it at this point. Please, yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, you know, they, there's even a nice little, uh, like a whiteboard animated video we can find. Yes, NASA, uh, it, it's not, a, believe me, it's not, a, it's not a perfect analogy. Right. But it's basically what's happening, and, and I think it really helps people understand how it is that you can you know, quote unquote, see underground, see these groundwater storage changes. Well, you're not actually seeing them. You're sensing the weight changes. Right. Cool. Okay. We got the nerdy stuff out of the way. Let's turn. We, we've talked about a lot of scary SHIT. <laughs> Let's turn to bright spots. One of the things that, that a manager, a water buffalo from Arizona will tell you is, oh, we've been storing a lot of water underground, this Colorado River water. Talk to me about that. Is that a bright spot? Are we going to be sure. able to use it? Yeah, I do think so. And I think we need to be storing more. We need to be storing more water. So, yes, that's true. We've been able in Arizona to store a fair amount of Colorado River water as groundwater. I think it's a great, a great use of the great use of the water. We have to be thinking a lot about keeping that up. So, OK, so it's like you recharged a bank account. And so now what are you going to keep right putting money into it or are you just going to drain it? So how we manage that. I think is is really important. So you know, there's the there's the what we call the managed aquifer recharge, right? The replenishment side, but then there's also the you know the actual extraction side. We need to be keeping up. You know, be very mindful of the balance. It's just like a bank account balance. Be very mindful of that groundwater account balance, and do the things that we need to do to keep it at a level. Just like, you know, to the degree possible, we want to treat it just like you would with your home budget. You want to keep it, you know, between some levels, you know, high level, great, low level, you know, we better be careful and try to sustain that over time. And that's a challenge because around the world, not just Arizona, we tend to just, you know, want to empty the bank account. But one of the issues is we don't know where the bottom is, right? And so we just keep, we keep going. To that point, I think that's true. And we can talk more about that, but I think there's also another issue, which is 
is it going to be there when we need it? Does it stay there or does it move? And are we doing the science we need to be doing to know that we can get it back when we want it? Yeah, good question. It may be or it may not be. You're right. There's a lot of, we're just, there's a lot of blind faith. So, uh, you know, it sounds like you're talking about the actual hydrogeology. And is this water dissipating? Is it flowing out of these aquifers where it's stored? I mean, certainly, you know, in the in California, there's the Kern County Water Bank. And yeah, the water does flow out, right? It's a very, it's like an alluvial aquifer. And, and it's being recharged, your water's being banked there. And psh, yeah, it flows, it flows away. So you're right. And I think that's true of a lot of stuff, John, about a lot of the questions we have, that there are a lot of science, there is a lot of science that needs to be done. You know, more than you or I, or even our water initiative in Arizona, you know, it's more than, there's a, it's, it's a huge problem. Uh, and it's one that really needs, you know, billions, if not trillions of dollars around the world. I hope we can really elevate these water issues to that, to that level, because certainly that's what we're doing with carbon, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're spending those billions, if not trillions on, on carbon. And, and it's, it's time to, to elevate water to that level. I agree with you completely. And I think there's a parallel conversation to be had around funding for climate mitigation and climate adaptation, right? The climate mitigation is the carbon part and the climate adaptation is quite literally the the, the water part, right? Because 80% of natural disasters are water related, including the droughts we're talking about, including hurricanes. But adaptation is, both are underfunded, but adaptation gets only 10% of the total funding, right? So I think that in some ways, I feel like we need to push for the general public and and yeah, the general public to understand that water fits into climate change that way. No, I agree. I have. You know, you should look at me. You look at my. I don't. I should know this quote, but it's my pinned tweet on Twitter. It's something like, you know, water is the messenger that delivers the the bad news about climate change. You know, to you, right? To your city, you know, to your to your front door. And that's true. I think a lot of people don't really recognize it. I didn't actually know that fact about how much is spent on adaptation. And, you know, we really need to push for this, John, and it's people like me and you, right, that and our colleagues that need to be pushing and, you know, building the case and, you know, advocating. And this is a case where advocacy, I think, is perfectly fine, that we need to be spending more money on adaptation because if we don't i mean look at what just happened in you know the the floods in libya for example right so here's a place that you know if you look at our grace maps it's just like just losing so it's just dry and getting drier and losing all this groundwater from the northwest sahara aquifer system and then boom you know colossal floods and you know, so many people, so many people die. And so that's that, you know, it's that adaptation It's being prepared for that seesaw yeah. of the, of the wet and the, and the wet and the dry. And there is a national, international level awareness that needs to be, needs to be raised. I like the way you put it in the context of climate adaptation. Cool. You just mentioned um, a process that I think is really important. You called it a seesaw. I think some of our colleagues call it climate whiplash. It's this you know, this this alternation between extremes of wet and dry. Talk to me about opportunities there. Like California was flooded last year and it has empty aquifers. Can we make use of that? Well, I, I hope. It's a challenge though. So it's that, that episodic nature. So let's think about the dry places of the, the dry lands and, and the dry regions of, uh, of say the United States, like, like the Southwest. 
It's really a challenge to capture that. So yes, you get now we're getting this whiplash, this you know the the oscillation between very dry and very wet. And but think about it, like from an engineering perspective, how the heck can you sort of magically capture these flood waters that you don't know when they're going to happen, you don't know where it's going to happen, you don't necessarily own the property, right? And so coming to t- figure that out this is just another you know area of research that we have to have For to sure. come to terms with so yeah it would be great if we could capture more of it it's just difficult for those regions where are you going to do it how are you going to do it is it even feasible i think it's probably feasible we just have to actually you know think about ways to almost like an emergency response right like hey we're going to go out and we're going to you know build the inflatable we're going to fire up the inflatable dam uh, <laughs> i don't know but yeah it's really really a challenge and it becoming more of a challenge right and it's not just you know not just in the in the southwest but you know the drylands of africa another great example all right cool let's end on a technology note nasa's got a bunch of cool stuff in the sky and i'm always hearing about new missions that are going to do X, Y, and Z, but I can't keep track of them, (laughs) to Mm -hmm. be honest with you. What's the new, you know, what are the newest things that are going to help us do this, you know, do the science that we're talking about, do the management that we're talking about from the sky? Well, you know, it may not be from NASA. It may be from the private, from the private sector. So NASA's niche is really the big, the flagship missions and they're great and they are, are excellent for science. And, you know, somewhat in our case for, for water management. So, you know, the SWAT mission, surface water, ocean topography mission launched at the end of 2022. So that's, that's new. We're just starting to understand what the data look like and, and what they're telling us. What does that uh, do? What, what, what's... That measures, uh, that measures the heights and the extent of major surface water bodies wow. all over, all over the world. So it's measuring, you know, the heights of rivers, and it can go along profile, so like you know, along a river, and so you wow. can you know, go along the Mississippi and, and get the height, and from that we can understand the discharge. But it also has uh, a mapping mode, so when there's flooding, right, we can map the flood, the flood inundation, and it's doing that globally. So we're finally getting kind of like grace in the sense that we're finally getting this picture of storage changes, but now it's on the surface, surface water, sort of like the waxing and the waning of the rivers and the lakes, you know, the whole thing globally, like how that water storage on the surface has changed. It's like so, having discharge gauge everywhere. Exactly. That's a selling point for the mission. It doesn't measure discharge, but you can calculate the discharge from the heights. So so that's so that's great. Next big one is uh, NASA, and I don't know the launch date, but it's called NISAR, NASA India. So NASA, the American Space Agency, and the Indian Space Agency, so NI, NASA India, SAR, Synthetic Aperture Radar. And that could be a big one for water too, because Synthetic Aperture Radar has the skill, has the capability. It's more complicated than what we call passive microwave, but has the capability to help us understand soil moisture, help us understand canopy structure. So it'll be, be really, really, really helpful. There's another new one, relatively new, I guess it's a few years now, EcoStress, which measures evapotranspiration that's on the space station. Coming down, so NISAR is coming. The next GRACE mission, which I think we're just calling the mass change mission, is coming who knows who knows when and this is my point about nasa is that it's a you know it's a political process it's a community process and you're talking about billions of dollars so it's not it's not nimble but a new you know an next grace mission where that would be higher resolution and maybe better for in space and time 
and better for water management, better for monitoring watersheds and you know aquifers at smaller scales. That's you know that's out there probably a few a few years. So NASA's not very nimble. The private sector is very nimble, and so there are a lot of small satellite companies that are that are out there that are filling this niche. And you know I won't name names, but uh, because my daughter works for one, and I just had a conversation <laughs> with another one yesterday about some research. But you know, very high resolution temperature, very high resolution soil moisture. You know, like kilometer or less. You know, some stuff. That, some of the temperature products that these companies are targeting are whatever. You know, ten meters. So what that means, you can do a much better job understanding surface temperature, understanding calculating evaporation, which is you know important water loss, especially for for irrigation. So, you know, one of the proposals that I'll be writing with one of these companies is just an internal thing, not very much money, but to try to, you know, see what we can see from satellites about farm water use, how much water is being applied. Maybe we can even tell what kind of irrigation is being applied. That's fantastic. And I mean, it's a good place to close. And I just want to say we were just talking about adaptation research not being funded. These kinds of missions, I think you put billions, maybe even you said trillions that we need to invest in this, but this is in that in that order of magnitude kind of investment for research. And it's global. And I think the big scale is so important for these things. So thanks for bringing that up. And, and uh, I'm going to go do a little bit of Googling on those, those missions. And it was great to have you on the show. Really good conversation. Thanks so much. Really, really appreciate it. Had a fun time. Cool. Thanks. What an epic conversation. It's always fun to talk with Jay, and I'm glad he's in Arizona now. They need him there for sure. A couple of quick threads to wrap up this fun conversation. First, climate adaptation research is underfunded, and satellite missions are an important tool for us to push this important endeavor forward. Second, although NASA and funding for NASA missions from the public sector is important, the private sector will become increasingly important here. Finally, Groundwater is not just a Western problem. It is a challenge across the U.S. and very central to a sustainable Mississippi River basin, even in states that have enormous surface water supplies right next door. That's it for this episode of Audacious Water. If you like the show, please rate or review us and tell your colleagues and friends. For more information about Audacious Water, visit our website at audaciouswater.org backslash podcast. Until next time, I'm John Sabo.